0: Oh, dear. (sighs) Hey, guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J. And in today's episode, I chat with the app Android engineer, Sherry Yuan. We talk about working with internal libraries and why they're useful, writing open source software, dependency injection, declarative UI frameworks, and more. Now on to the show. So I guess the first thing that I'm kind of interested in, so I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier today and you've got Yelp on there, you've got Hootsuite, you've got Intuit. It doesn't seem like you've worked at any small companies. They're all like super serious, big companies. So how did you get started in app development?
1: Yeah, so Hootsuite was the smallest company I worked at. And then um, my school has a pretty good co-op program where it has a lot of local Vancouver companies and. I did apply to a lot of smaller companies. Um, I knew I wanted a mobile position. I didn't actually know if I wanted to Android or iOS at this point. Cause I was just like in my third year of college and then, yeah. And then Hootsuite was the company that offered me a position. So I thought that was, so I went with that.
0: <laughs> okay, nice. So did you learn Android while you were at Hootsuite?
1: Pretty much. Before Hootsuite, I also was doing some projects with friends. Um, we did iOS and Android because, like as I said, I didn't know which one I wanted to go with, but they're very simple compared to what you would do at work. Like I didn't know about Java, or Dagger or anything before Hootsuite.
0: I also noticed, um, I think this is right, when you were at Hootsuite, that you worked on a bunch of internal libraries they use in their app?
1: Uh, Yeah, so one of the ones I worked on was Nachos, which was like an open source material chips library. That was actually started by their previous intern, and then I was adding a bit to it. And...
0: I guess kind of what I wanted to ask was, so obviously you've worked at a bunch of big companies, so how many of them kind of employ that, that idea of building parts of their app into libraries, and how do you find that approach? Because all the companies I've worked at their app is one big code base. There's no there's no internal libraries. There's no it's just one big thing. So how do you find working in that way?
1: So at Hootsuite, one problem with having a lot of libraries is the dependencies because um sometimes you have like multiple layers of libraries depending on each other. Now that I think about it, like some of that could have just been modules instead of standalone libraries, but I think back then modularization wasn't as popular. Um this was in 2017. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. Part of the reason some of them were libraries was as I mentioned um some of them get open source and then that's kind of nice.
0: So do you think they would have took the modular approach if that had been an option back then?
1: I think so. We ended up building a tool in Ruby on Rails to actually just um Manual to go into Grado and then bump all the dependencies and then create pull requests. So we had a Ruby script for that. So I think a module might have been easier, but it was a pretty cool Ruby script.
0: Uh, yeah, that sounds good. We do something similar. Well, actually, a few places I've worked that, but using um GitHub Actions because I don't know Ruby. so
1: Oh, yeah, that didn't exist back then either.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right.
1: <laughs> GitHub Actions would have been good.
0: You mentioned one of the interesting things for you was learning Kotlin back when it was brand new so can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like because i didn't pick it up until probably like two years after it had kind of hit android and probably actually when it was in android studio like fully supported so what was the experience like previous to that
1: i think i got really lucky that hootsuite decided to go for kotlin as soon as 1.0 came out because back in 2017 i don't think that many companies were using kotlin yet but I mean, first we had to actually figure out how to learn it. So what we did was go through Kotlin Cohen's, that's their tutorial for kind of learning the types and collection functions. And then we also did a reading group where we read Kotlin in action. Um, That was the main book for learning Kotlin at the time. I think now a few more have been published, but yeah, like we read books together. And... Yeah, in general, there weren't too many resources available yet. For example, there were no, there was no official style guide, so we kind of had to make up our own and then decide whether or not to use Java conventions or make up our own. Like one thing we really discussed was whether or not to use Hungarian notation, and then now no one really uses Hungarian notation for Kotlin.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. So on the stuff that you work on now, is that all Java, uh, not Java, is that all Kotlin or is it still hybrid kind of Java Kotlin?
1: Yeah. So at Yelp, because it's such an ode, it's been around for many years. Um, the idea is we decided not to convert existing code to Kotlin, but all our new code will be Kotlin. So I write mostly Kotlin, but if I have to kind of go into an older class, it's going to be in Java. This was different at Hootsuite because um The app was slightly newer, so we actually put in some effort to convert even older classes into Kotlin.
0: That seems a sensible approach. I think that's the approach a lot of companies have taken. It's just new stuff should be in Kotlin, and then eventually you end up with a whole Kotlin code base, which is so much nicer to work with.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So another thing that I wanted to ask about is, so you've worked on a a library called Bento, and in in the kind of like the GitHub page, it says it's a a declarative UI framework So for the layman's, including me, what is a declarative UI framework and what is bento? And can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: The declarative framework is kind of in opposition with imperative UI framework, which is more common in Android right now. So with imperative code, you're describing how to do what you want done. So for example, like if you're setting visibilities for a view every time the state changes and then For declarative code, you're basically describing what you want or describing the UI state, and then the framework will kind of set the visibility for you instead of you having to manually set UI states. And then, yeah, like declarative UI frameworks are getting more popular now. Um, On web, there's React, and then there's Vue, and then Flutter and Jetpack Composer also declarative UI frameworks for Android.
0: So how, how is that, I assume it is, but in my head I'm trying to work out, how is that different from, so imperative would be that you have, you know, I have a view, I press a button, and then I tell, I say that I want this view to now disappear. And then I press a button and I've got another piece of code that says I want this view to now show. How is a declarative framework different from having data binding on that view that says when a state of something changes, change this view, or are they similar?
1: The thing is, I don't think Bento is actually fully declarative. Um, I think Jetpack Compose is trying to be fully declarative because in Bento, sometimes you still have to manually set some view states. Um, I think the reason I consider it declarative is um, it's more modular. Um, it abstracts away a lot of the recycler view logic for you. So instead of you manually kind of having to figure out the placement of the cells and handling the different view holder types bento handles that for you and it's kind of similar to airbnb's epoxy
0: okay all right yeah i've I've worked with epoxy before so i kind of i kind of get that idea of how that works
1: oh yeah bento is more similar to epoxy than it is to jetpack compose for example and i think epoxy is also kind of declarative but still has a bit of imperative
0: gotcha have you worked with jetpack compose at all
1: I've looked at sample code for it, and then it does remind me a lot of React, but I haven't really tried writing stuff in it because I feel like it's still so in flux, it's hard to say what
0: the... Yeah, it's it's changing all the time. I I looked at it maybe six months ago, and it kind of, it went over my head, and and then I just thought, there's no point in me trying to learn this until it's finalized what it's going to be, because... It's going to take me forever to learn and then it's going to change. So
1: Yeah, I've been kind of trying to keep track of what's happening with Swift UI to get a sense of what might happen with Jetpack Compose because that's iOS's equivalent and they released it sooner than... I was going
0: to say that's that's a lot more mature now, right? Like I think it's been out for six months at least, like properly supported.
1: Yeah, I remember talking to some iOS friends and then at first they were like, oh, we don't really want to use SwiftUI, but then because Apple added so much support for it, they are starting to use it and that might happen with Jetpack Compose too.
0: Yeah, I feel like the the iOS developer crowd is a lot more, um, they're a lot faster to to pick up things than the Android development crowd. We seem to take a while, like something gets fully supported, but nobody in the in- community is interested to about a year afterwards, whereas SwiftUI, everyone's like, oh my God, it's out, let's do it now.
1: Yeah, I guess, I don't know that much about iOS development, but for... Um, Android I do feel like people want to feel like something stable before. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's part of the Google problem as well is that they change things so often that you want to you want to make sure before you start learning this that you're actually learning something that's going to exist in 6 months time.
1: Yeah, like you want to make sure other major projects are using it too before you commit to it even if Google already recommends.
0: Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Another another topic that I kind of wanted to touch on is you wrote an article on Medium about dependency injection and kind of just wanted to talk about in generalities, what is dependency injection? How is it useful? When do you use it? Basically, that kind of thing.
1: So, there's like the solid design principles when it comes to design patterns for writing good code. And then the D in solid stands for dependency inversion. And then dependency injection is supposed to kind of support that. So, I guess I can think of an example. So, there are a few. So, if a car class needs an engine object, there are a few ways you could provide that. Um, The car can either create its own instance um, when it initializes, or it can um, have it supplied as a parameter in its constructor, and then the app can provide that dependency slash parameter. So then the car doesn't actually have to worry about how, where it's getting the engine or how it gets the engine. So that would be an example of dependency injection, and it's nice because it makes the code more reusable because you don't have to think about like what engine you're creating. It's very nice for testing because instead of creating a real engine when you want to test a car, you can just pass in a mock one.
0: I guess my question is, so I've worked with Dagger before and I didn't find it a very enjoyable experience. I think that was because I was kind of junior when I worked with it, but I recently started working with Coin and I really like Coin. So have you worked with both of those, and do you have a preference?
1: I pretty much have the same experience as you. Um, so at Hootsuite, it was all Dagger, and then at Yelp, it's a bit of Dagger and a bit of Cohen. And we've kind of decided to move towards Cohen because it's so much easier to work with. And then I read that um, Cohen has slower performance than Dagger, but I haven't noticed it at all, and Yelp is a pretty big app, so... And it's very nice in Colin. So if your products are mostly in Kotlin, Kotlin um, looks very nice when you use it.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think for me, Dagger was very much a copy and paste what someone else has done experience because I didn't really understand how it worked as opposed to like going where you can actually figure out how it works and you can do cool things with it so
1: yeah and then dagger has a lot of boilerplate so just to set it up
0: oh yeah a lot of boilerplate that was the co- copy and paste aspect for me because otherwise i wouldn't be able to do it from scratch
1: have you looked at hilt at all
0: uh no i haven't actually
1: oh it's it was just announced and i haven't written any code with it or anything but i was just reading about it. And it's supposed to kind of be a layer on top of Dagger that Google's making to help with the boilerplate. But I guess that'll be interesting to see where it goes.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. I'll have to have have a Google for that afterwards, because that sounds that's that's no pun intended, but that sounds pretty interesting. So another question that I wanted to ask you is I saw somewhere, and I was trying to find it just before this call, and I couldn't. So I'm hoping that I'm right. That I think it was either a paper or a talk that you did with someone else about machine learning?
1: So I took a machine learning course and then our talk was kind of mostly from the course and from the machine learning projects that my club was working on. But then I haven't worked with it in a professional setting because I feel like at most companies you wouldn't both be doing mobile development and machine learning. But yeah, I think the one part where it has come to use is like for looking at analytics at Yelp because um. There is some overlap where you might be writing some Python scripts and you might be running a Jupyter notebook, but I haven't done like actual machine learning outside of that class and some school projects.
0: Okay, fair enough. I thought I thought I would ask just in case, um, cause it seems super interesting to me. Another question is, So you mentioned that you have skills in like design, UX, um, HCI, and the question is kind of what's the process like when you work on your own personal projects, including like using those things as opposed to just focused on code?
1: I guess before, like when I have a product idea, I would normally go into the app store and look at some existing apps that have similar functionality. And that would give me a sense of what are the user experience patterns that already exist for that. And then um, when it comes to mocking designs, sometimes I just draw on paper if it's a small project that it's more for learning purposes than me actually wanting to create a polished version. But then if I want it to be more polished, I might draw mocks on Figma instead. Um, I would say Figma is very easy to work with. I never like officially learned it, but I've just like looking at designs from work and from like designer friends, I picked it up and found it really easy to work with. And then I would say, like, even if you don't know much about design, like, one way to make your app look pretty nice is to just pick a color and font palette and stick with it. So you can look online for that. And then Material Design also provides guidelines in terms of that. And then just there are a few sources I use for um, icons and drawable assets that where it's like open source um, SVG images. Um, I can send those to you and you could maybe put them in the show notes. Okay, I'll put them in
0: the that. show notes. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, so you don't have to draw your own illustrations, but there are some ways to find nice ones.
0: Okay, cool. All right, nice. So do you have your own apps anywhere on the Play Store or something like that?
1: I don't have any on the Play Store right now. I just kind of put the code on GitHub. And
0: <laughs> okay, cool. So just like fun side projects. One other thing that I wanted to ask. So, Because you've worked at so many big companies. Right now you're at Yelp. So... In, in your time of doing like development, what's kind of the most interesting thing you've done or the most interest, interesting technology that you've worked with?
1: Oh, there's, so Yelp uses um, MVI, which is like model view intent. And we have an internal library for that called auto MVI. And I find it really nice to work with. So you actually, um, it's built on top of an event us using RxJava and then you're just kind of firing events between presenters and views and it's really nice and we've been thinking about open sourcing it so hopefully that'll happen
0: so working with mvi am i right that you've got your your view which would be uh, um i don't know let's say fragment or something and you've got presenter and then the way that they would communicate would be firing intents to each other
1: uh yeah that sounds about right so at uh, yelp the presenters fire. States which are like view states, and then the views fire events. And I, th- I think MVI is so new that people kind of take the idea and go in very different directions with it. Like that's what I've noticed with MVI.
0: So how do you like working with that versus so like I so most recently I've started working with MVVM, um, and I kind of like it. If I'm being like totally honest, I find MVP, MVVM, all of these kind of things they're fairly similar. There's small changes. How do you find working with MVI?
1: I like it because it really reduces boilerplate, and then the testing setup we have is really nice. But as I mentioned, I think it varies so much between companies and projects because I don't think there's anything first party supporting it really. So people just kind of make up their own way of doing it. <laughs> I know some companies are using Kotlin Flow to handle it, some companies are using Arcs Java. Like-
0: okay, okay, cool. So it's a bit of a Wild West in that sense.
1: Yeah, so I feel like if you don't have anything internally set up for it, um, or plan to invest in that, I think MVVM might be easier to work with since there's so many, so much first-party support for it.
0: Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, uh, yeah. I suppose getting into it is a bit easier because there is this is how you're supposed, quote unquote, supposed to do it as opposed to MVI, which is do what you want. Yeah. So kind of in closing, but I've got a few questions before we finish, which I ask everyone because I find it super interesting. So the first question is, what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer?
1: So I think the technical part is kind of the more obvious one. I would also say maybe communication skills will be very important because like assuming you're working with a team or even your own project that you'll be maintaining for a while, it's kind of, important to keep the communication open and then I feel like there is kind of a trap to make your code clever instead of understandable and then this kind of ties into the communication but like what's most important is that your code is understandable and easier to maintain even if it means it's not the cleverest or most concise solution.
0: What machine do you use to work from?
1: I've always used some kind of MacBook Pro for development. It was like, I mean, kind of when I was trying to decide between Android and iOS, I needed to be able to run Xcode as well. Yeah, my current home laptop is a 2017 MacBook Pro, and then my work laptop is a 2019 one with the touch bar.
0: Okay, nice. So MacBook Pro all the way. Yeah. Okay, awesome. And then where can I direct people to in terms of projects you might be working on, or where can people find you online?
1: GitHub and LinkedIn would be... Most of where my coding things are, and then I use Instagram for art, so I can link you all three of those. And then,
0: oh, okay, cool. I saw, I actually saw that mention, I think it was on your LinkedIn somewhere about art for Instagram. I didn't manage to check it out yet, but I will do.
1: Yeah, sure. I can send you all the links.
0: Big thanks to today's guest, Sherry Yuan. You can find Sherry on LinkedIn, GitHub, at Frosty Shadows. You can find Bento on the Yelp GitHub, and you can check out Sherry's artwork on Instagram. As always, you can find everything we talked about in this episode in the show notes. If you like the show, tell a friend, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. It's much appreciated. And if you really like the show, you can support it with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash coffee Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with like-minded developers, you can do so in our Facebook community. And finally, you can follow me on your favorite social media platform at lowcarbrob. You can find all the links to everything I've just said in the show notes or at coffeeencodingpod.com. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.